0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Well, Genesis 9-11 through tells the story of how we as a human race went from one man, Noah, after the flood, and and his three sons to the multinational, multilingual world that we now live in. It's the story of how God dispersed the peoples across the face of the whole earth. In chapter 10 in particular, often referred to as the table of nations, Not because it is literally a dining room table, as I've pictured here, but because it lists in a table fashion all of the nations of the earth that descended from these three sons of Noah, Japheth, Shem, and Ham. And in general, we we looked at this last week, Japheth's descendants, here pictured with the letter J, generally migrated north, before spreading out. That's what Genesis chapter 10 tells us. And then Ham's descendants, represented by the letter H here, generally moved south and west. And uh, Shem's descendants generally moved east and south into the Middle East. And so here we have this, this table of nations right here smack dab in the middle of these three chapters, chapter 9, 10, and 11. And... If chapter 10 is just a long list, a long genealogy of, of people descended from Noah and explaining where all these different nations came from, then chapter 9 on, on this side of the table, uh, it, it gives us some context. Chapters 9 and, ten and 11 give us context for this dispersion, okay? And what we learn from these two chapters, chapter 9 and chapter 11 is that the dispersion of the people across the face of the earth wasn't arbitrary. It was according to God's sovereign plan. And in, in Genesis chapter 9, we, we looked and we saw how Noah, looking out prophetically into the future, saw the, this dispersion and he spoke a word of blessing and of cursing over his sons because of the sin of, of his son, Ham. And so, Genesis chapter 9 teaches us that the dispersion of the nations was covered by the sovereign blessing and cursing of God. It was God's blessing and God's cursing that shaped the development of the nations itself. That's what Genesis chapter 9 tells us. And now here on the far side of the table of nations, in in Genesis chapter 11, we have the the story of the city of the Tower of Babel. And here, in, in this chapter, we, we learn that our dispersion across the face of the earth was marked by rebellion. It was marked by rebellion. In, in fact, the dispersion of, of the people across the face of the earth really could be described as a shattering of the people. Right? We, what we find out in Genesis chapter 11 is that we really tried to, to kind of grouped together and not obey God's command, and God really shattered us, spread us out across the face of the earth. That's what this story tells us. Now, again, these chapters are not arranged here chronologically. If they were chronological, they would, chapter 11 would have to fall right smack dab in the middle of chapter 10. They're laid out thematically. The story of, of Babel, it looks back on the table of nations, and it helps us to explain it. In fact, we can locate the Tower of Babel, the city of Babel, in the Table of Nations. If you look at Genesis chapter 10 and verse 8, we read about the founding of this ancient city. Uh, in fact, let's just read that verse from the text of Scripture. Genesis 10, beginning in verse 8, says Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the, the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. There it is. Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. This is describing the, the founding of the great city of Babel by a man named Nimrod. And Nimrod is described as a mighty hunter. And You might think if you're, you know, if you're into hunting that, wow, that's a, that's a great thing. to be described as a mighty hunter before the Lord here, but really this description of of being a mighty man and being a mighty hunter uh, is not really a positive description in in the book of Genesis. If you remember back to before the great flood, we had a, a description of mighty men of renown, the men of old, the Nephilim, the giants that lived back then. And those were not positive descriptions of those people. Were they? They were the, the mighty men of old that led the world into great wickedness, which led God to, to send the great judgment of the flood. So Nimrod is, you, you should have a little light bulb that's going off in your head that, that's saying here, okay, Nimrod is one of these mighty men of the earth. He's founding great cities. So we can see the founding of Babel here in the table of nations, Genesis chapter 10, and The one thing I want you to notice here is that Nimrod descended from Ham. Remember last week as we were looking at the story of Ham uh, dishonoring Noah, his father, and God ends up cursing one of Ham's sons, Canaan? Well, here we have the story of another of Ham's descendants, Nimrod. Nimrod was the great-grandson of Noah through Ham. Noah, Ham, Cush, then Nimrod. That's how the the city of Babel was founded. And then in verse 25 of of chapter 10, we read about the dispersion of the peoples. This is actually through uh, the line of Shem this time. In in verse uh, 25, it says, To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan. So just a, a, a quick reference there, but the name Peleg means division. Can you imagine being named division? It's like, like maybe a great tragedy happened in your lifetime, like say um, 9-11 and that year your son is born and you name him something like Great Destruction or something like that. I mean, that's basically what happened. They named this, this man after the dispersion. And so we can see uh, the dispersion that God brought at Babel in Genesis chapter 10. But now let's, let's turn to Genesis chapter 11 and look at the account of the Tower of Babel itself. So all that is just introductory here. Uh, the, the historical account of Babel as recorded for us in Genesis chapter 11 stands as a monument to the futility of all man-centered unity. It's a a monument. It's such a memorable story, isn't it? It stands as a historical monument for all time of of the futility of what it means for, for us to unite as mankind apart from God. Let me show you what I mean. First, we're going to see in the first four verses that man unites. Look at Genesis chapter 11 and verse 1. It says, Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. This is describing a situation that you and I have never known. Right? A world where everyone speaks the same language. Literally here, it's the same lip, the same words. We've never known a world like that. And it it makes sense, doesn't it, that the whole world would speak the same language? I mean, everybody came from Noah. They're like one big happy family. Well, maybe not happy, but they're one big family, all speaking the same language. And what what this means is that there was very little preventing the people of the earth of this time from uniting, whether for good or for evil. There was no natural barrier in keeping them from all uniting as one. And this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because we, we've been talking week after week here about how the, the, the flood waters you know, the flood wiped out everyone on earth because of their wickedness, except for one family, Noah. Right? And yet we, we saw, even though Noah came through the flood as a, as a man of God, as a prophet of God, we, we found that even in Noah, that sin still existed in his heart. Our sinful hearts were not cleansed by the flood. We needed a greater redemption. We needed a greater cleansing than just the cleansing of the earth. We needed the cleansing of our hearts. And so we shouldn't be surprised here to see mankind so quickly uniting for evil. And and that's what we're going to see here. Look at verse 2. It says, And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. Traditionally, the land of Shinar is uh, located, has been located by, you know, biblical archaeologists uh, in southern Mesopotamia. And specifically, they, they will locate Babel at the same location that would later become Babylon. That's sort of the traditional understanding. You know, Babylon, the, the idolatrous empire that later in the Bible would be responsible for coming and carrying the Israelites into captivity, into exile. Babylon, the, the symbol of the city of sinful man, in, really in any age, as you read through the Old Testament, New Testament, oftentimes the, the name Babylon is taken up as a symbol just for a, the wicked worldwide system of mankind. It becomes a symbol of that. Babylon, the, the still yet future city that we read about in the book of Revelation that will one day defile all the earth. This is like I said, traditionally people see Babel as the literal roots of that famous city, Babylon. That famous empire. Really the the one problem with this is that Babylon is located almost directly due south of Mount Ararat. You remember Noah's Ark, as the waters receded, it it came to rest upon Mount Ararat, which is in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And Babylon is located almost, it's kind of southwest, a little bit west of Mount Ararat. So if we're going to locate Babel right there in where Babylon is... We, we're going to have to explain here why Moses describes the people coming from the east to settle in this, this location. So I don't really want to get too much into this debate about where Babel was originally located. I'll leave that up to the biblical archaeologists to, to debate. But the one thing I want, want you to know with confidence is this, that it's not debatable that the spiritual root of Babel, of Babylon, is Babel, right? These, these cities are united across time in, in their spirit of rebellion against God. And I, I don't think it's, it's an accident that, that this ancient city is called Babel and uh, later another empire, just like it, arises and calls itself Babylon. There's, it's not an accident, right? Whether or not you can trace them to be literal r- roots of one another. And so look here at, at verse 3. Notice the call here of, of these settlers of the plain of Shinar. They're gonna kind of issue a call using the word come. It says, and they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and, and bitumen for mortar. Maybe not too impressive to us in our modern day, but um, let me tell you, at the time, brick. I think it, it shows their ingenuity, doesn't it? They, they went to make a city and they didn't just use wood or, or, you know, stones laying on the ground. They made their own bricks. And I think bricks speaks to great strength and security. Instead of, you know, existing in temporary dwellings or tents or that sort of thing, they were, they were building really sturdy bricks, burning them thoroughly, making them strong. And um, then in the very next verse here, we see what comes of this brick making. Verse 4, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. You say, what's so bad about that? Is God anti-city? Is he anti-towers? Should we tear down all our skyscrapers? I I think if you conclude that God is anti-city, you you miss the point. Right? The downfall of this city and this tower is why they built them. This verse here, verse four, I think gives us at least three reasons why they built this city. First of all, they built it to engage in false worship. They said, "Come, let us build a city and a tower." with its top in the heavens. Right? They, they, I, I think we, we oftentimes conclude from this that they were trying to build a literal uh, staircase to heaven as if they could somehow actually reach heaven. As if the point were the height of the tower. I don't, I don't think the point is necessarily the height of the tower. The point is that they were constructing here something that would put them in touch with the divine. They were, in a sense, uh, building a, a stairway to heaven. You know, artists over the years have sort of conjectured what the Tower of Babel might have looked like. And I don't know if you can see that. But, uh, you know, these are just some, some renditions. But they, they, almost undoubtedly, this tower was almost undoubtedly a ziggurat, you know, sort of a, a stair step up. And, and at the top of these ziggurats, you know, uh, those who study these things will, will tell you that they were almost always built for religious purposes. They were worshiping the stars of heaven. The zodiac was developed because of this. Astrology, these sorts of things. They were w- worshiping the false gods. And so the very seductive idea here, the the seductive call to all the earth was, hey, come to Babel. We're building a tower to heaven where you can worship the gods. You can get in touch with the divine. It was an alternative to worshiping the one true God. They were trying to build their own stairway to heaven, not realizing that it was really a stairway to nowhere. This man made stairway to nowhere is exactly like all man made efforts to reach God, to reach salvation. It's futile. It's futile. No matter how high we build, no matter how hard we try to reach heaven, no matter how hard we try to reach salvation, we always fall short. We always fall woefully short. I intended to, to put a picture in my presentation and I forgot to do it. I was uh, flying to Ohio earlier this year and was on an early morning flight. It was still dark as I was flying. And uh, as I began to approach the, the airport where I was landing in Toledo, actually, I'm not sure. I guess I was landing in Chicago. It was a long time ago. I'm not sure where I was landing. I flew over Chicago was the point. And the sun was coming up and right there on, on the shores of the Great Lake there was the great city of Chicago and I snapped a really cool photo of it. Just a clear beautiful day. And you know from that height I was amazed at how small Chicago looked. You know the the, the great skyscrapers the, sp- the sprawling suburbs. I mean it just all looked so tiny. And, and I, I, it just reminded me here of this story of, you know, no matter how high we, how hard and how high we try to reach, from God's perspective, it's, it, it, it's, it's nothing. It's nothing. We cannot reach to him. And, and that's what this, this city of Babel was, uh, this is why they were building it, in a vain attempt to reach to God. Secondly, we see here that they, they were building this city to make a name for themselves. They said, come, let us make a name for ourselves. This is the pride of life, self-exaltation, worldly success. You know, God made us in his image. And he made us to do great things. He made us, he put in, in us a desire to live forever with him. But in our sinful fallen condition, we are confronted rather with the, just the drudgery of it all, of our, of our existence, right? We, we are, are frustrated by how little we're able to accomplish in our lives. And, and there's a vanity to it, a futility to our existence, and as we grow older, we realize that all that we worked so hard to a- attain will one day be lost and cut off. So in these few short years that we have, we, we all have this desire to, to make our mark, right? To, to do something significant, to stand out, to leave a legacy, to, to, to somehow attain some measure of immortality. Whether it's your name on a building or your name in the headlines or your name in the lights, right? We all long to be significant and to make a name for ourselves. You know, we, we all feel these things. I, I was just traveling a couple weekends ago, and I was in D.C uh, on my way back from Thanksgiving, and I, I stopped at a hotel. And it was Saturday night, I was checking in, and the, the guy behind the desk was making small talk with me. And he said, oh, you know, what are you going to do in D.C. tomorrow? You know, he could perceive I was a tourist. And I said, oh, well, I'm just on my, my way through. I'm heading back to New Jersey. I'm going to go to church in the city tomorrow, and then I'm going to head home. And he was just baffled, baffled by that. He said, you know, no, he said, no one in this city goes to church. <laughs> he, he almost was like, are there churches here? You know, it was kind of like that kind of a question. He said, everybody here, all they care about is their career. Quite a, quite a comment from a local resident of our nation's capital, right? And it's easy for me to point my finger at them and say, look at their selfish ambition as they pursue their careers. But you know what? It exists in pastors too, right? We want to write books and have, our, have uh, you know, big audiences. and We all have this pride of life. We want to stand out. We want to make our mark, I think, as as uh, citizens of the modern world, we have at our fingertips, uh, you know, a loud megap- megaphone to make our lives seem significant. Right, just with a few touches, I can blast my my thoughts and my uh, my world, whether it's what I'm eating or what I'm doing, out to all of my friends and everybody that I know through social media. And uh, I, I think in our Age, the pride of life has a very distinct individualistic twist to it. I don't just, we don't just want to make a name for ourselves. I want to make a name for me. It's the spirit of our age. So we're not that different from these people. Thirdly, the call here and the reason to build this city was to rebel against God's commands. God's will for mankind was, was clear. Man was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He, he told it to Adam and Eve. And then after the flood, it was like the one thing God re-emphasized to Noah. He was like, hey, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, spread out and team on the earth, right? He wanted them to spread out and to, to carry his glory to the ends of the earth. And so if God's will for mankind was sort of an outward tra- trajectory, one of the really evil things about this city was that it was an attempt to reverse that. It was saying, hey, don't, don't obey God's command to spread out, but rather come to us. Right? We're building the city of cities. It's a magnet city. We're, we're, look at our tower. Right? We're, we're making a name here. We're, we've got bricks. We've got security. You don't need to... To, to spread out and obey the Lord and trust him. Come worship the gods here. Come find security here. Come make a name for yourself here. So this great city would hold all the human family together and unite us, I think, with a thump on, on our chests, a pat on our back, and a sneer on our face that says, I did it my way, not God's way. So we see man uniting. This is what it looks like for the world to be completely united. We we rush to uh, in the power that that unity brings. It brings us great unity for expressing the depravity that's in our hearts because of sin. And so, so next we see here in the story, verse five, that God investigates. God investigates. Verse 5. It says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Uh, I I love this this verse. It truly is the center point of the story that God came down to see them. And I I really love this expression here that that it calls us the children of, of man God coming down from heaven to see what the children of man had built is literally the children of Adam, the children of the dust of the ground. Let's see what these earthlings have made. The children of man were trying to build a stairway to heaven and lo and behold, the Lord of heaven comes down to see them. God has literally shown up unannounced and overlooked in the midst of all their ambition. Now, I think it's important to, to mention here that of course the Lord didn't have to come down to see this, right? The Lord is everywhere. In him we live and move and have our being. He sees all things. He knows all things. But I think the fact that he did literally come down is, is sort of ironic. One commentator I was reading this week put it really well. He said, no matter how high they towered, the Lord still had to descend to see it. Here these people were busily expending all their efforts in constructing a stairway to heaven and God comes down to them by some other unseen route. They thought they needed to reach up and attain heaven, but that was futile. They couldn't see that their real need was for heaven to come down to them, to reach down to them and save them. But the Lord's visitation among them this time wasn't Christmas, not this time. It's his coming to this city was not peace on earth and goodwill towards men like we celebrate this time of year. This is God as the the good judge of all the earth fully investigating the matter before executing a just judgment upon them. You you know, the people of this city can't say that, oh God, you were up there in heaven from your high, high perspective just doling out judgment upon us. No, God, he came down to their level and he had full knowledge of the situation and look what God does next in verses six through nine. Look at verse six. God scatters here, verse six. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. God is not flustered by the ability of these these men who are building this city and this tower. God is not flustered by our abilities to unite against him. Rather, God knows that as his image bearers, we are capable of amazing things. And he sees that these people at this time, fully united, would be able to do the impossible but they would be doing the impossible with hearts full of evil. God knows that a man-centered unity only leads to a full expression of our depravity. Look at verses 7 through 9 now. Verse 7. Come, the Lord says, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. This is God, again, this let us, I think this is God having his own conversation amongst the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8, So the Lord dispersed them there from over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. In just a moment, just a word of his mouth, God frustrates their plans. He frustrates their unity. The the Psalms speak of, uh, Psalm chapter 2 speaks of, you know, why do the nations rage against the Lord Almighty? God laughs at that, at at the nations raging against him. He is all-powerful. All he has to do is, with a word of his mouth, he completely mixes up our ability to communicate with one another. He creates a natural barrier between peoples. He accomplishes his will. He shatters us across the face of the earth without raising even a single sword, he conquers this great city of man. Have you ever been somewhere where no one around you knows your language? Have you ever been to a foreign country? Um, I've, I've been in that situation a, a number of times by God's grace. And uh, I can tell you, it, it leaves you feeling extremely vulnerable. You know, maybe... Um, you know, you have a, a translation book in your back pocket or a, maybe you have Google Translate on your phone or something like that, but you're, you're completely surrounded by people that you cannot communicate with. creates a, a sense of vulnerability and isolation and even fear. And then there's that moment where you come across someone who speaks your language in that setting and you're just like, oh my goodness, yes. I've been looking for you right? And especially if they're a native speaker of your language. It's just like, wow, you know, there's that immediate connection. Can you imagine the inhabitants of this city? One moment they could converse with one another. And the the next moment, it was like everyone around them was speaking gibberish. And they didn't have Google Translate. They didn't have interpreters. They didn't have prior experience or knowledge of different languages at all. Can you imagine the confusion? Can you imagine the pandemonium? Can you imagine the fear that must have descended upon all the people of the earth? The text says that the effect of this was that they left off building their great city. And they ended up sort of posthumously naming this city Babel, which (laughs) literally, I mean, it's a play on the Hebrew word for confusion. They named the city. I wish I knew what the city was named before that. But it will forever be called Babel because of what God did there. Now, on one level, this story that we've just gone through is simply an explanation of how. How we got such a diversity of languages in the world. You know, languages do evolve and change over time. Right? You know that? Uh, For example, you know, I am not a native New Jerseyan. I'm from the Midwest originally, and I'm still tickled listening to y'all talk because, uh, you know, you have a very distinct way of speaking, from, from where I, I hail from originally. And likewise, I've spent many years in the South, and I, I love listening to different dialects of English. You know, the, the language changes over time based upon different regions and that sort of thing. Take that even a step further separate English by a giant ocean and hundreds of years between England and America. You have British English and American English. The language changed as it came across here. Then go back in time with English. I don't know about you, but in high school, I could barely understand Shakespeare. I, I did terrible at that. Right? We had to read that in English class, and I said, is this English? You know? I needed a commentary to even just understand what Shakespeare was talking about. If you go back in time beyond Shakespeare and read some old English before Shakespeare, man, it's almost completely unreadable, to unrecognizable to us. Languages evolve and change over time. But does this kind of, of change in language account for all the diversity of languages in the world today? I would say hardly. Hardly. I was reading an article this morning on a website called listverse.com. And the article was entitled, Ten Bizarre Languages Still Spoken Around the World. I wish I had time to, like, go through each one of those this morning, which I don't. Um, but ranking in at number six on this list is the Silbo language. The Silbo language of La Gomera, somewhere in Spain, off the coast of Spain, uh, this article said, may be one of the most unique and uniquely beautiful languages of the modern day. While most languages incorporate complex sounds with consonants, verbs, and all that pizzazz, the Silbo language is remarkably simple. It's a whistle language. (sighs) (laughs) That's just amazing. There's a language out there that is full of of different whistles. You tell me how, how that, how a whistle language came from the same place that English came from right? And it goes on to tell of other languages. There are some languages that incorporate all kinds of clicking noises with the tongue. I went on YouTube and and was listening to some of these. It's incredible. It's incredible. They're they're drastically different languages. You know, you can group all the languages in the world in in sort of these language linguistic families, trace them back, right? We can understand French and, and Italian and uh, German a little bit easier than we can say Chinese. Right? Chinese is a tonal language. I, I tried to study Chinese once and there's like five different ways to say the word ma. Four or five different ways. The Chinese speakers here can tell you about it later. You know, if you, if you say ma, it's one meaning. If you say ma, it's another meaning. If you say ma, it's another meaning. And I was just like, I gave up. I said, you know what? The potential to miscommunicate is incredible. the diversity of language in this wide world, uh, even though you can group all these languages into to language families, it is I- incredibly difficult to explain how they could have sprung from one root. And guess what? That's what evolution has to do. The theory of evolution has to explain how uh, somehow man evolved, and at one point there was some humanoid being that suddenly developed the ability to communicate with a language, right? And from there, language spread across the whole earth. So you either have to explain how all these diverse languages come from one root, or you have to defend the even more improbable idea that the ability to speak evolved multiple times and from multiple locations all around the earth. Highly improbable, I mean statistically impossible. Evolution itself is statistically impossible, but add on top of that the the development of, of all these diverse languages, it's just incredibly improbable. On the other hand here, we have the story of the Tower of Babel, and it makes good sense. It makes logical sense that the radically linguistically diverse world that we live in had a moment where the God who made us stepped down and shattered our ability to communicate and spread us out over the face of the earth because of our rebellion and sin. Makes sense. Makes sense of our world. And I think this is one of the reasons why God gave us this story. Now, on another level, this story is about why It's about why we got such diversity of language in the world. This is the story of God further limiting our depravity by shattering our potential for unity. This is the story, this is the the prototype of the foolishness of man-centered unity. Unity apart from the God who made us. So memorable. And I think in, in contrast to this, in stunning contrast to this, is the story in the New Testament from Acts chapter 2 when God reversed this shattering of languages for just a moment. Let's read it together. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. This is the story of Pentecost. Jesus has come He has died on the cross. He's been buried. He's risen again from the grave. He's ascended back into heaven and he has now sent the Holy Spirit down on people who are believing in him. And it says here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now here comes the reversal of Babel. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews Devout men from every nation under heaven, so people who spoke different languages here. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and said, They are filled with new wine. It's the reversal of Babel. And the message of this is clear, isn't it? If God shatters our languages, if God shatters our man-centered unity at Babel, what does it mean that he momentarily restores our unity at Pentecost? It means that Christ is the answer to the unity that we long for. Jesus is the true source of worldwide unity. He is the true stairway to heaven. In him we can and should unite as one. The, the New Testament talks about this Genesis or I'm sorry Galatians chapter 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Jesus is all in all. Now that is unity. That is true unity. And this is just a tiny taste of the heavenly gathering of the universal church that we get a glimpse of in the book of Revelation as we Look into heaven. God gives us a a glimpse into heaven. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. It says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That is the kind of unity that that is in our hearts that we long for. Every tribe, tongue, nation united as one. But it's not to be found in man-centered unity. It's to be found united around the throne of the God who made us. And in him we find true unity. If I had time, I would reread for you revelation chapter 21 where we get also a stunning glimpse of the city of god remember i said god is not anti-city god has his own city the new jerusalem and we see it in revelation 21 it was our new testament reading this morning like a a bride prepared for its bridegroom descending from heaven and it's the most glorious most beautiful most wonderful city you would ever want to dwell in And so the story of the Bible, my friends, really is a tale of two cities. It's a tale of two cities. There's the, the city of man symbolized here in Babel or Babylon. And the city of God that we read about in Revelation chapter 21. The city of of man calls us to come. Let's rally together to build our own stairway to heaven. Let's throw off God's commands and do it our way. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make ourselves secure. But we see in scripture uh, another city, the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And in this city, God says, I will make you a name. I will make a name for you. I will put my name upon you. And in him, the glorious and eternal one, we find glory and immortality. In him we find true security and unity both now and forevermore. Augustine said it like this. He said, Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly and By the love of self, even to the contempt of God, heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. Question this morning is which city do you want to live in? This Christmas, will you stop your aimless attempts to build your own stairway to heaven? and instead carefully consider that heaven has come down to you. Heaven has come down to us not just to judge and scramble our languages like what we read about in Genesis chapter 11. He came down to be born as a man, to show us what it means to live. He came down to die in our place, to take our sins upon himself at the cross, He came down to rise again from our greatest enemy, the grave, so that he could then make a way back to heaven for us. Jesus is the stairway to heaven. We cannot build a stairway to heaven, but God has shown us the way. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So let us say again this Christmas, O come, let us adore him. Let's pray.